today's passage comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that we can worship the risen Lord this morning. We praise you that we are able to worship you in spirit and in truth. And like Sergius Paulus, we desire to hear the word of God this morning. So we pray that you would be with Pastor Jeff, that you would preach and proclaim your word through him. Pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds to you, that we might worship you now under the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Good morning. Great to see you. Somebody just left me an encouraging note that says you're smart enough, you're kind enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. (laughs) I received that. (laughs) Thank you, whoever left me that. Hey, we're in Acts chapter 13. We're going to be in that passage and many more. But I wanted to start with a story this morning that might cause the hair on the back of your neck to just come up a little bit, but I'm going to share this with you anyway. I'm just a reporter. Don't blame me. Um, way back when, when I was about 16 years old, uh, I was just a radically sold out and radical uh, Christian believer in the Lord. And uh, I, was, I was this troubled kid. I had come to faith. Christ had filled me with the Holy Spirit. And the missions committee at my church asked me if I would go on a missions trip to Dominica, island in the Caribbeans. And I said, absolutely. Didn't even have to pray about it. I'm there. I just want to share the good news, share the gospel with anyone who will listen. And so we put together this youth team of about 25 kids or so. And uh, we had decided, our youth pastor, he was a little nuts, but the guy was awesome. And he decided we were going to do a carnival all week. So we weren't going to build anything. We were just, every day, we went to what they called a football field, which turns out it was a soccer field. And um, so we went there and set up our carnival and we brought suitcases full of just little trinkets, like little dollar store uh, keychains. And we actually brought brought a handful, a couple handfuls of just uh, pennies, bags full of them actually. And we taped them to these cards, these note cards. And we had an invitation to the Bible camp or the revival services that we were doing at the local church that weekend. So they would come for the carnival all week, and then we would just give them prizes and give them things. And I thought, nobody's going to show up for this. This is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. And the whole, I'm pretty sure the whole island showed up. <laughs> they, were, they showed up in droves, and they kept, they kept saying, hey, can we have an American penny too? And, uh, and so we would give them these things, even if they hadn't won anything. <laughs> Everybody was a winner that day. Everybody got a trophy for participation that day. And so we did this all week long. And we kept inviting them to the worship services and inviting them to the Bible camp that weekend that we were running at that local church. And I thought, nobody's ever going to show. They, they're going to take their penny and run, right? And they came. So Friday night, our youth pastor got up 
and just delivered an awesome, powerful message from God's word, gave his testimony. And then I mean to tell you, that church, which was a fairly large church for that region, uh, that island, was full. It was packed to the guilds, to the walls. There was standing room only. People were outside, standing room only, trying to hear through the windows, trying to hear through the open doors the message of the gospel. And it was awesome. So the second night, on Saturday night, he said, Jeff, I want you to give your testimony. I said, oh, yes, it's on, like Donkey Kong. Let's do it. And, uh, and so they gave me the mic, and I took my Bible, and I shared the story of how Jesus got a hold of my life and changed me. And by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I had been saved, washed clean. And just, I told him the whole story. And then at the end, I was like, now here's what we're going to do. So as I was getting to the 30, 40 minutes of my message, my youth pastor who was on the front row gave me this signal, wrap it up. You know, like, <laughs> time to wrap it up, Jeff. You're preaching too long. And so then I gave an altar call. How many of you have been in a church where there was an altar call? Anybody? Yes, quite a few of you. So you know what I'm talking about. Old school. Uh, this is where we used to call people down to the front. So that was sort of uh, our method of actually baptizing people. Now we just baptize them. Imagine that. That's New Testament. And uh, so, But we would call them down to the front to make a decision for Christ. Come down here and declare your loyalty, your faith, your trust in Jesus. And when I did that... The whole church came forward, and all the teens and the children were down in front, and they were on their knees crying out for salvation. I was so powerfully moved by that man. And then a little team, and I was standing there. We were praying over kids and leading them to the Lord. And right out the left side door, a little group of teenagers came in. They came running in, and one of the girls grabbed me by the arm. She said, Pastor Jeff, and I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I'm just a kid, you know, and, uh, and they rushed me out the side door. We went down the stairs, and in the back, we went to the back of the building. Between the back of the building and the latrines, their bathrooms were outside, not attached to the building. There was this space, and there was an even larger crowd there, and there was a crowd gathered around something in the middle. And I was like, what's going on? And they pulled me through this crowd. And when I got to the perimeter of this circle, there was a girl. I found out later her name was Christina. And Christina was on her knees in the dirt. And it looked like to me, I'm just telling you what it looked like. It looked like something had her by the back of the hair and was slamming her face into the ground. And it was uncontrollable. And she was vomiting. Uh, she was not in her right mind. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I knew right then and there, I just knew something in my spirit. It just felt like a sponge was being squeezed. And I knew it was the power of darkness. It was the devil. And, and in that next second, what I heard in my mind was, I want you to go set her free. And I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> so I went and I walked up to her. And while she is flopping and hitting the ground, I walk up and take her by the hands and lift her up. I said, stand up, young lady, Jesus Christ set you free by the power of God. Or I said something like that. And I mean to tell you, it, you, it was like the sun dawned. It went from dark to sunrise. Her eyes stopped darting around. She looked right at me, and she just burst into tears. She is covered in vomit. She falls into my arms she falls into my arms. Now, I am covered in tears and vomit, and she is just saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for praying for me. It turns out that Christina had been raised in witchcraft, 
She had been dedicated by her mom to evil spirits, and she had been raised basically as a living sacrifice to these demons, these demonic powers, and they had control. I'm telling you, they had control over her life, and now they don't because the power of God still sets people free, folks. And I hope you believe that, and I hope you haven't been duped into thinking that as Christians, we're just kind of living this natural life and living in this natural world, and sort of people come along, we just say, hey, have a nice day, Jesus loves you. Nope, we are engaged as a church in this darkened culture against the powers and the forces of darkness that are designed to drag people to hell. And God has called us through the gospel and speaking the truth and the power of the Spirit to set them free. Now, this is the kind of story we're reading today. (laughs) Acts chapter 13, we are reading about a story in which there is a power encounter between Paul and his associates and this guy named Bar-Jesus, which means the son of Jesus or the son of Joshua. That's what that means. Very common name. Uh, Jesus' name, by the way, would have been Bar-Yosef, the son of Joseph, right? Now, Uh, The first missionary journey to these Gentiles involves the island of Cyprus. So now Paul and his companions and Barnabas and their companions are going to this island of Cyprus. Now of all the places you would want to live in the ancient world, Cyprus would be one of them. It was tropical. It was Mediterranean. It was great. They enjoyed very seasonal weather. Two massive, beautiful mountain ranges. The island had two primary rivers running through the island for transport and a Roman road that was very well kept between all the cities, connecting all the coastal cities. Thank you, Rome, for making the gospel easier to get to these places. It had a large Greek-style theater. It had a Roman forum, and it had a large uh, Greek-style gymnasium and a marbled pool that was surrounded by statues to Greek false gods, Greek deities. With an estimated population of 150,000, Salamis, this place that they land at first, it has a beautiful harbor, you roll in, you go in there. Now, the first thing that you see, that you notice when you pull into Salamis, is you notice all the pagan temples devoted to the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And they are spectacular, they're beautiful, but they're very cultic. And you also notice, just down the street, a bunch of synagogues. There are synagogues everywhere. (laughs) In these cities, uh, Salamis and Paphos, there's synagogues all over the place. And the Jews on the island of Cyprus were well known. They were uh, renowned among the rest of the dispersion for being very devout, very pious, good people. And so now this is the environment to which they have come. First thing we note here is that they began proclaiming the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. This is Paul's pattern. So pretty much uh, when we meet Paul right away in chapter 9, after he's saved, he goes into the synagogue to argue that Jesus is the Christ. This is the wording that the New Testament uses. This is what Luke says. Now, this is a very effective strategy. It's also by God's design because God wants to offer the gospel to his original covenant people first. When Jesus came, he offered the gospel to the Jews in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. He offered the gospel to them first and then to the Gentiles. This is, in fact, what Paul says. Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek or then to the Gentile. 
But the Jewish, Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. And in rejecting the gospel, in rejecting their king, their anointed Messiah, that opened a way for the gospel to go out to the Gentile world. Now, about three times between Romans 9 and Romans 11, Paul has to ask this kind of question. Uh, has God given up on his people? Has God given up on his people, Israel? Has, he, has, has God, he asked the question in Romans 11.1, 1, has God rejected his own? And the answer that he answers himself, he says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God has not rejected the people he foreknew. From eternity past, he chose them as his prized possession, his special nation, and he chose them from all the peoples of the earth. So no, he says God has not rejected them. So several times he has to say God has not rejected them. Look at Romans 11, 11 through 12. He says, I ask them, they, have they stumbled so as to fall, that is, fall beyond repentance? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Whose transgression? God's? No, theirs. What's their transgression? Rejecting the Messiah, not believing in the one who was sent, who comes to complete the covenants and the promises, and to deliver salvation to the nations. They have rejected him. So Paul uses two examples of people in those chapters who are hardened. The first one is Esau. Esau is hardened because he desired a bowl of pottage more than he desired the covenant, the right of primogenitor, right? That's what, they, that's what theologians call it. We like to make up names for stuff, right? So it's just the right of the firstborn. And so he desired that, but then he also uses Pharaoh. Now, if you look at the story of Pharaoh, here's what Paul says. Paul says, God hardened his heart. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Yes, God hardened his heart. Paul says he did. How did God harden his heart? Go back and look at the story. In chapters 8 and 9 of Exodus, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart against the Lord. The Lord comes and says, don't harden your heart. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Chapter 13, and so the Lord hardened his heart. How does the Lord harden you? How's the, how does the Lord make you recalcitrant and intractable and, and, and harden you? Okay, yeah, so how does the Lord, uh, <laughs> I had, had a little uh, thesaurus moment there. Um, <laughs> but how does the Lord harden your heart? You're predisposed to hardening your heart against the Lord. He will. So the analogy that I gave my youth group when I was a youth pastor is uh, my, my kid, Bobby, who this kid was in my youth group, and he loved the Lord, and we're camping out in Spokane one time, and we're down at the river, the Spokane River, and he goes down there, he finds all this orangey, mushy clay, and he creates this beautiful, awesome piece of pottery, like a bowl, and he sets it out in the sun for a whole day, and the next day, he brings it up, he brings it up to the table, and so I went into the camper, and I melted a bowl of butter, and I brought it out, and I sat it there, and for devotions that day, I said, uh, what is the condition of your heart? Is your heart clay or is your heart butter? Because the same sun that melts clay melts butter. Or the same sun that hardens clay melts butter. And they're like, we want to be melted butter, you know. And uh, <laughs> the same rays that can harden you can soften you, depending on your predisposition toward God. This is why the book of Hebrews says three times, do not, if you hear the message today, do not harden your heart against the Lord. 
This is why the psalmist has to say in Psalm, what is it, 85 or 95, the psalmist has to say, listen, if you're hearing this message today, don't harden your heart the way you did in Meribah. Don't harden yourself against the Lord. And so when Paul says Israel's rejection means our riches, he does not mean God's rejection of Israel. He means Israel's rejection of God. And so yes, God, for a time, has hardened them. But this has meant riches for the, the Gentile nations. So what is the result of rejecting this Messiah? Well, God has turned his attention and focus and energy toward the Gentile nations. Romans 9, Paul says this. He quotes Hosea 1. He says, I will call not my people. That's their title. The title of all the Gentile nations that are not Israel is not my people. Hi, where are you from? Greece? Oh, you're not my people. Right? God says, I will call the folks who are not my people, my people. And she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told you were not my people, where they will be called the sons of the living God. Peter will echo, echo this same sentiment. Look at what he says, 1 Peter 2, 10. Once you were not a people, he's talking to the Gentile Christians here. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In that chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, what is he talking about? He's talking about God building his holy temple consisting of Jew and Gentile. And he says, you weren't a people, now you are a people. You weren't part of the family, now you are part of the family. You have been welcomed into the family. In Isaiah 49.6, it says, it is not enough. It's, it's not enough. For you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. He says, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This was not a popular passage read in the synagogues in the first century. They were not thinking that God was going to come and save the Gentiles through them. They were thinking God is going to come and save us from the Gentiles. He's going to come and reverse our fortunes. So God had always intended for the gospel to be a light to the peoples of the earth all the Gentile nations. But he first offered this salvation to his own people. Paul and Barnabas are doing this by first going to Jewish synagogues. And the synagogues have essentially three kinds of people in them. The synagogue will have the natural born Jew. Later, next week, you'll learn, uh, we'll learn and we'll see that he calls them sons and daughters of Abraham. And then he, sa- he stands up and he says, sons and daughters of Abraham and those who fear God. Two groups of people. Everybody fears God, but some of you are the sons and daughters of Abraham, but some of you have converted to Judaism from Greek faith. And then the third group of people would be those who have not converted, but they're God-fearers. They're just there because they believe in the God of the Torah. They don't necessarily practice it, but they believe in it. So Paul and Barnabas are immediately opposed by a Jewish false prophet named Elimus Bar-Jesus. Elimus Bar-Jesus. Verse 6 says they came... Across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, but Elimus the sorcerer, that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they take this manicured, well-kept Roman road from Salamis, the coast, all the way down to Paphos. When they get to Paphos, they find pretty much the same situation. People are hungry for the gospel. People are receptive to it. They are showing up and packing out the synagogues to hear this message. And they're excited and they're coming to the faith. And word gets out to Sergius Paulus, who is the proconsul of this 
city. And he wants Paul and Barnabas to come into his courts and to explain more about this. Why, why would this be true? Because the Greeks, many of them, uh, they had a weird fascination with Judaism. Uh, in their literature, you would find all kinds of miracle stories that were mythological. They were mythical in nature. But when you look at the Old Testament, you find a lot of miracle stories that involve the natural world. Like, how does God send a flood in Genesis? He pops open the springs and he sends the rain. And so the Greeks are just interested in this. As a matter of fact, the Greeks viewed the Jewish people as a people to be magicians. They, they thought of them as just a, a, a group of people, an ethnic race of magicians. And so now we meet this man named Elemus, and he is a sorcerer. In fact, Luke calls him a magi, a magi. Uh, so he is a magi. He is a person who is practicing the magical arts. He is uh, into astrology. He is also studying the Old Testament as a book of incantations. He's not studying it the way that uh, a normal devout Jew would study it. And so Elemus is a magi. He's a sorcerer. He is in tune and in touch with the powers of darkness. And what do the powers of darkness want to do? They want to stop Sergius from believing in the gospel. He wants to stop Sergius. The power that is behind him is trying to stop this budding faith from growing to fruition. And so they want to hear. So Sergius wants to hear all the stories. He says, man, I want to hear all the miracle stories about this Jesus from Nazareth. I want to hear that. That sounds really interesting. And tell me about this resurrection. <laughs> so they are, they're like, yes, invitation received. We're coming. And what we learn from this is that false prophets are the primary way in which the gospel is opposed in the world. And it doesn't matter what form it takes. It doesn't matter what form it takes. You know, false prophecy is a false message. Is anybody who says, I'm speaking on behalf of God, I'm divining a message from God, and it turns out it's not from God. And it could be political false prophecy. It could be false prophecy of any political system. It could be a false religion. It could be uh, anything that somebody is trapped in where they are being told this is the truth, and in fact, God has not said it, it is not the truth. And so what we see here is we see this false prophet who is dead set against the church, and the mission of the church. And this is precisely how Satan opposes the gospel. Look at Jeremiah 23. This is what God says about false prophets and false prophecy. He says, I'm against the prophets. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Israel's prophets. He's saying, I'm against them. This is the Lord's declaration. Who use their own tongues to make a declaration. I am against those who prophesy false dreams. That's the Lord's declaration telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It was not I who sent or commanded them, and, and they are of no benefit at all to the people. Now, that is the Lord's declaration. What is he saying? This false prophecy, this false teaching that they're trying to deceive you with and pull you into idolatry, it's reckless and it's false, and I haven't sent them, and it's useless. It isn't going to help you at all. So much to Sergius and Elemus' surprise, Paul does not engage in the customary battle of rhetoric. Now, in this world, if you have two spiritual, competing spiritual authorities, uh, you have an audience, and the audience decides between them who is telling the truth based on their rhetoric. They were very, very proud of their ability to speak eloquently and to really body slam, verbally body slam their opponents 
And so this is what they expect now. They expect this Jewish rabbi to step up and talk to this magi, this wisdom sage, this sorcerer. That is not what Paul does. Paul does not engage in high rhetoric. He does something else. We'll learn that in a few minutes. So let's talk. Let's take a few minutes and talk about power encounters with the forces of darkness. Yay! Aren't you excited about that? Yeah, yeah, I got to tell you something. This last week, I told the first service this, um, I could not write this sermon. Like I knew what this message was going to be about and I showed up, like usually Monday, I have it all outlined. Tuesday, I work on it. Wednesday, I refine it. And Thursday, I turn it in to the team, right? To get it all ready for you and your consumption. And uh, Monday, couldn't get anything together. Tuesday, I was like, ah, maybe I just need a good night of sleep. I got a good night of sleep. I woke up Tuesday morning, hit the computer. I mean, at 7 o'clock, I'm looking at the passage, and I'm like, and nothing. In fact, I felt so foggy. I felt like there was a fog on me. By Thursday, I'm telling Patrick and the other guys on staff and Ryan, I'm like, I can't write this sermon. I go, all I have is a bunch of notes. Nobody wants to read my notes. It's not a sermon yet. And I just felt like I was in a fog. And, and Patrick just kind of encouraged me and said, man, you know the Holy Spirit wants to speak to someone's heart this weekend. Because this never happens to you. It doesn't. And so I got to tell you, we're talking about power encounters today with the forces of darkness. And I want to share with you the key. I want to share with you some helpful keys in doing that. Number one, recognize that our weapons are not of this world. Paul knew this. Paul knew this. Our, his weapons weren't of this world. They expected him to step up and engage in high rhetoric. What does Paul do? Rebukes him. Curses him, actually. Our weapons are not of this world. We are engaged in a battle between light and darkness, between truth and untruth, between the powers of hell and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And the armaments of the Christian faith are fundamentally different than the way in which the world wages war. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. He says, for although we live in the flesh, we live bodily lives, we do live natural lives, don't we? We do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're powerful, they're mighty, through God for the demolition of strongholds. God has given us heavenly resources to meet spiritual needs. God has given us heavenly resources to wage this war for the souls, the hearts, the minds, the lives of people who are being dragged to hell by deception. And it's the power of the gospel that sets them free. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, not my preaching, not my illustrations, not my sermon outline, not my structure, not my personality, it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Ephesians 6.12, he says, for our struggle. Now notice in both passages, he presupposes you and I have a struggle. He's not just talking to Corinthians. He is not just talking to Ephesians in the first century. He's talking to Christians. If you're reading this, it's for you. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers of this dark age, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavenlies. He is referring to the rulers and the authorities who are opposing the gospel. Sergius Paulus is a ruler and authority. And what Paul knows is that behind the scenes, what you can't see is that there are spiritual rulers and authorities and powers, cosmic powers that are working 
pulling the strings, influencing those men and women to legislate against the gospel, to oppose the gospel, to do everything they can to stop the gospel from freely going out and going forward. And these powers are evil. They're spiritual forces working in the heavenly realm behind the scenes. And whether it's Russia, China, North Korea, Muslim nations in the Middle East, African nations, whether it's the United States of America, understand that there are cosmic powers working behind the scenes to influence people's rulers' choices to persecute the church, to limit human freedom, to proclaim the gospel. And these are spiritual forces. And this is whom our battle is against. Number two, we demolish arguments in the arrogance of this present age. Well, our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this world. They're otherworldly. It's the message, the divinely decreed message of the gospel. And then we demolish arguments and the arrogance of this present age. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, we demolish arguments. And every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And we punish every act of disobedience to Christ. What is he saying here? The story of Paul and Elimus Bar-Jesus is kind of rare. The vast majority of times that Paul engaged in spiritual warfare, it was a warfare over the gospel being proclaimed and the false deceptive arguments against the gospel. The vast majority of time, this is how he engaged in spiritual warfare. And he says, we demolish these arguments. This means we make them nothing. We tear them apart. We just unravel them. And why are those who peddle these arguments arrogant? Listen, no one is more arrogant. No one sounds smarter than the erudite, brilliant village atheist. Until that village atheist meets an informed Christian who can answer their objections to the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you've been informed and you've been rooted and grounded in the gospel, and you can sit across a table and say, hey, listen, here are the evidences and the arguments for God's existence and the resurrection Jesus. Listen, that village atheist doesn't seem so smart anymore. God has called us to demolish arguments, to devastate them with the truth, because we love them. And we take captive every thought and every idea. Now here, I have most often quoted this particular verse uh, personally. Like if I'm struggling with something, I'm like, man, I'm going to take that thought captive. But in this context, that's really not what he's talking about. He's not, I hope you do that, and I continue to do that, but that's not really what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is taking the false ideas in the culture that are being peddled and influenced and whispered in the ears by these spiritual rulers and authorities and cosmic powers into people's ears, and he's saying, this is what we take captive the thoughts and the ideas that oppose the gospel. No one is going to be set free because I'm nice to them. Now, no one's going to listen to me if I'm not. I'm going to be nice, but we're going to proclaim the gospel. It's the power of God. So when philosophy or science or financial theory or governmental theory, it doesn't matter what the theory is, all of these things are wonderful. They're wonderful. Every venue of research and inquiry 
They've blessed mankind. They've been a blessing to mankind. And they all have what I would call a ministerial function, not a magisterial function. They all are called to be ministers and servants to the gospel, not to sovereignly stand over it. So science is good when it ministers to the gospel. Science is good. Philosophy is good. Human philosophy is good when it is a, has a serving relationship to the gospel, but not when it arrogantly vaunts itself and stands sovereignly over it. And so we punish every act of disobedience. He says we're prepared to do that. We're prepared to bring it to nothing and publicly make it a display. So understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not of this world. They're mighty through God for the pulling down of these supernatural strongholds. And the main way we do that is to proclaim the gospel to pierce the darkness of false ideas with the truth. Number three, we guard our hearts and minds against error. One of the main ways in which believers practice spiritual warfare is to guard your own mind and your own heart. This is critical. This is vital. Look at what he says in Colossians 2, 8 through 10. Paul says this. He says, be careful. What does that word mean? It means be vigilant. Be alert. Don't be sloppy. Don't live a sloppy life. I just told my son, he was driving up north to visit grandma and visit grandpa, and I told him, I said, listen, to get to Coeur d'Alene, you have to pass two serious as a heart attack mountain passes, and you have learned to drive in a desert that is flat. <laughs> and this is what I said, be careful. Just watch it. Put your foot on that brake when you're coming down the hill, and don't burn it out. Okay, so be careful. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Pay attention to what you're doing. Be careful that no one takes you captive, you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition and based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Now, the translator is trying to help you out there. The translator is trying to help you out. He's trying to say, hey, according to the elements of this world, but that is not what the Greek says. The Greek says the elemental spirits. The Greek says the elemental spirits. Now, why is the translator doing this? He's, he's not being mean. He's not being deceptive. He's just trying to help you out. You're an American. We live in America. We live in a culture where the atmosphere of our culture is what's called philosophical naturalism. It is the belief that there is no supernatural or spiritual realm at all. So he's just trying to help you out, but he's wrong. This, the Greek text says the elemental spirits look at what the, of the world rather than Christ. Verse 9. But the entire fullness of God's nature... The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler, authority, and cosmic power. What is he saying? You are part of, you have been brought into a kingdom of the Messiah who has resurrected from the dead and ascended through the clouds. Remember we said in chapter one, ancient Near Eastern, an ancient Near Eastern way of saying Ascended to the highest throne is to ascend through the clouds. Jesus has acceded to God's own throne, to the right hand of power, to David's throne. And so you have been brought, born again, into a kingdom in which there is no ruler, no authority, no power that could possibly control your life, no matter what the laws are. No matter how much persecution comes in China, those Christians are free. They're part of the kingdom of God the kingdom of Christ. 
And he says these elemental spirits, what do they want to do? They want to stop the gospel. So we are cautious and we are vigilant against being duped, against being deceived, taken captive into thinking the way the world thinks. But ultimately, everything that they supply, every answer that they have for every single problem is a superficial answer. Now, it may be a very helpful answer. Listen, if you develop a miracle vaccine to keep people from dying in the hospital, super. That's great. I'm glad for that. If you develop uh, an awesome uh, machine that keeps people's heart pumping, awesome. Glad for that. If you have a political theory, like personally, I I believe in a, a representative democracy. I think it's the best system of government in the history of the world. Great. You will maximize people's flourishing. But ultimately, any answer to any problem in this world that's of this world is superficial. It's superficial. Because that answer is not dealing with root causes and ultimate outcomes. And what the gospel does when these things, these wonderful, wonderful things in our world, when they come into obedience to the gospel, then they begin, they get a larger horizon. They're dealing with root causes and ultimate outcomes. So it does not matter what the solution is, we need the gospel. So the question is, why is the human race so wicked? Why are things so evil? Why do nations hate each other so much? Why is there so much injustice in the world? As a good Bible-believing Christian, what would your answer be? Where would you take them in Scripture? Genesis. Genesis what chapter? Three. What's in Genesis 3? The fall of man, right? That is the good, correct, biblically literate answer. Thank you, Cliff. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, I don't know if you know this, there are four falls of man. Four. The first one is in Genesis 3. That's Adam. The word Adam just means man. The fall of man into sin, introducing sin, and then you go over to Romans 5, and what does Paul say? Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Now, righteousness has entered through one man, Christ, and now we have the reign of life through grace. That's what he says. So Genesis 3, that's the right answer. Bing. Also Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we have another fall. That is all of humanity in Adam now rebelling against God. And in Genesis 6, we have this really curious passage about the sons of God who came down and had intercourse with the daughters of men, and the sons of God language in the Old Testament is divine counsel language. So you have this massive rebellion of humanity instigated by the sons of God. Weird passage, but it's a fall. And then all hell breaks loose in the world, right? And so then you have also Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, you have another fall. That's the fall of Israel. Now, they haven't even made it into the promised land yet. Moses is prophesying to them, you're going to fail. <laughs> like, God, Adam failed. Adam's line, his race failed. And now you, as, as the new son, you're going to fail. When you get to the book of Isaiah, that's exactly what Isaiah says. The, the first son, the first Israel failed. The new Israel is going to succeed. So Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 32 is about the fall of Israel. Now, that is being instigated by the sons of God, this heavenly assembly of rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers who are enticing Israel, enticing the nations to come and worship false idols. And this is explained in 
Psalm chapter 82. So when you look at Psalm 82, it explains what is going on, the dynamic that is happening in Deuteronomy 32. Now, when we get to Romans 1, and Paul describes the human race as being utterly, completely, totally depraved, why? Why have we been dragged into false teaching? Why have we been dragged into worshiping these idols and then behind those idols, all of these rulers, powers, and cosmic authorities, right? Why is that happening? Because there is a spiritual war going on wanting to drag people away from God. So why should we guard our hearts and minds making sure that every human idea is into obedience and the service of Christ? Why should we do that? Hosea 4, 6 God says, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. You know what the ancient Romans used to call Jesus? The ancient Greco-Romans called Jesus the destroyer of the gods. Larry Hurtado wrote a great book called The Destroyer of the Gods. And what, what happened was when Christianity, the message of Jesus went into the Greek and Roman world, it so upended, within a few hundred years, it destroyed Greek religion and Roman religion, and so they call him the, the destroyer of the gods. You and I serve the high, exalted, risen king who is the destroyer of the gods. He's called us to destroy arguments that set themselves up against the kingdom of God, and yet the people of God sometimes are destroyed. Why? Because of lack of knowledge. Because we are not rooted and grounded and established in the word, in our faith. And so this confrontation with false teaching and this false prophet by Paul is a contest between two kingdoms. Number four, we confront spiritual forces in the power of the Spirit. And notice, it says when Paul heard this, this man, he discovered that this man was trying to turn Sergius away from the gospel. It says, full of the Holy Spirit, he said, I recommend that you not say this to another human being unless you're full of the Holy Spirit for sure. So Paul does not so much enter into a rhetorical struggle with the Lemus here as, it, as he has a power struggle with them, a power encounter. With Jews in the synagogue, with public officials, and in many trials he endures, Paul, true to form, engages in spiritual warfare. He tells the truth and pierces the darkness, and in this case, he confronts the power of darkness. Notice in verses 9 through 11, it says, But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus. This must have been a very unnerving moment to have Paul do this to you, right? Just lock eyes with you. And said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. When is the last time you had a coffee chat with someone like this, right? <laughs> is this the way you open up your friend friendship conversation? Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind. For a time, you're going to be blind, and you will not see the sun for a time. So this is a temporary judgment for his repentance, for his redemption. And immediately a mist of darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So what does Sergius Paulus do? He goes, hey, I think that's probably a superior power. And he converts. He gives his life to Jesus. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and begins to follow the Lord. And so when Paul says the hand of the Lord is against you, man, that is textbook going Old Testament on somebody. And we vanquish the power of the devil when we affirm the truth of God over a lie. Are there any lies that you're believing right now? Are there any lies that the enemy is telling you about God, about salvation, about yourself? 
that you've been believing? Will you choose to believe the Lord and not those lies? And we vanquish the power of the devil when we confront his hold on people through the word and prayer. Through the word and prayer. A lot can be accomplished as we pray for people and share the word of God which pierces the darkness. Colossians 2.15, I'll end with this. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. The rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. And he triumphed over them in him. And so let me ask you a question today. What's your hang up? We are fighting a defeated foe. What's your struggle? We are fighting a battle that has already been won. You see, when you go into that battle, regardless of the outcome in this life, you do not proceed to get the victory. You proceed from a point of victory. Christ has already won the battle for you. Do you believe that? And what do you lack for this fight? What resources? What do you lack for your mind and your heart? Because we are fighting against a disarmed ruler and authority, the God of this world who has no power, no authority over you or over your life. And I mean, I had to remind myself of this daily. I'll just end with this. I, uh, <clears throat> about a year or so ago, a lot of you already know this. Many of you are new to our church, though. I, I just went through about six months to a year, I don't know how long exactly, of just crippling anxiety. Just feeling, I got up in the morning one day, made my coffee, I sat down in my chair, and then suddenly, because Carrie and I were going through a lot of suffering at the time, I just had this tr triggered anxiety from the top of my head to the sole of my feet. I could feel like my brain just pumping a chemical of anxiety into my system. And my heart started racing, and I couldn't slow it down. And so I just cried out to the Lord. I grabbed my Bible off the table, I started reading through the book of Psalms, and I read through a lot of Psalms during this period. And I would just breathe deeply. I didn't even know what to do. I just breathed deeply and I would pray. And I would pray the words of that psalm. And this is what I had to say. God, that's true. And this thing that I'm facing right now that is causing my anxiety, this thing that is just burning my house down right now, that's not true. What it's, what it's threatening to do to me is not true. I'm in your hands. You have me. And I would just pray those psalms that I'm telling you folks, Sometimes you just got to make your stand. Sometimes you just got to plant your feet and dig in your heels and get the word of God in front of you and you begin to pray it through and say, that's not true. That's not the way my story is going to end. That's not God's plan for me. That's not his purpose. God has me in his hands and he knows what he wants for my life. Will you pray with me? Father, we just thank you for giving us this amazing story in this, this chapter. And it tells us that we're in an epic battle, an epic struggle, a life and death battle between truth and untruth, between what you say and the lies. And God, the world is full of lies, but you have given us that one source of truth to anchor us, knowing that what you say is true. And if you're here this morning and, and you're struggling, frankly, you've been listening to that voice whispering in your ear, telling you that God doesn't love you or you're not acceptable by the Lord. Listen, you're not. You're in Christ and God accepts Christ. And listen to me, this morning, God wants you to be free. God wants you to have power over that. Will you just embrace it? Will you just receive it? 
And Father, we just receive the resources of heaven. We receive the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome, to be more than conquerors over these things that come into our lives and they threaten us. And they threaten our security. They threaten, God, our identity in you. And Lord, we just choose to believe what you say. And God, this morning, if there's anyone here, if you're here this morning and you've been believing in idols, false gods, and you have not turned to faith in Jesus, would you do it this morning? Don't leave this room before you have a chance to do that. Would you just turn your heart to the Lord? Something like this. You say, Father God, I just, I believe falsely. And I turn away from lies. And I trust in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God, who died for my sins on a cross and rose on the third day, victorious over death, hell, and sin. And I receive him as my Savior, my Lord. And from this moment forward, the battle is won because I belong to him. In Jesus' name, amen.